Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International Podcast. If this is your first time here, do head on over to our YouTube page and subscribe and follow us as well on all social media platforms, as well as all the audio platforms, wherever you get your podcast. If this is your first time here, Strategy International is a global think tank that brings together great minds uh, from all over the world to discuss, analyze, and uh, research topics of global interest, such as international relations, policy, strategy, defense, economy, and much, much more. Uh, Of course, you can visit strategyinternational.org for all information and all the beautiful things that are being done over at Strategy International. Speaking of great minds, we have another great guest with us today, Dr. Khaled Al-Kasimi. He's an assistant professor of political science and international relations over at the American University in the Emirates uh, with particular expertise in international law and international relations, uh, security studies and post-development studies, and finally, uh, political philosophy. Uh, Khaled, how are you? Thank you for, uh, for coming on to the program. Thank you for having me, George. It's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have. We don't often get the opportunity to discuss uh, developments in the Arab world. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to picking your brain on different uh, topics that are uh, that uh, that have piqued our curiosity from all over the world. Um, I, I, I want to start because I, and I didn't know that you had published a book. Um, recently, you published a new book titled International Law, Necropolitics and Arab Lives, The Legalization of Creative Chaos in Arabia. Immediately, there's a word that pops up uh, that, that got me very curious, uh, necropolitics. Um, what is necropolitics? Explain to the people that are watching or listening. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure. Uh, before I start, I actually wanted to uh, just say a few words in relation to Strategy International. Uh, we were pleased uh, to have you as a strategic partner in our recent uh International Arab Security Gulf Conference, which went exceptionally well. Uh, This happened a few weeks ago in Dubai at AUE. Uh, So I just wanted to say that it's it's always a pleasure to have uh, a think tank as prestigious as yours um, in representing and playing a part in the success of our conference. Uh, In relation to the book, uh, specifically necropolitics as a concept, uh, necropolitics by definition means the politics of death. Okay, so uh, considering that it's been uh, 20 years since uh, the intervention or the conquest of Iraq, depending who uh, side you're you're aligned with, um, the book started or the concept itself was related to usually politics is, you know, the art of creating better possibilities for people. Uh, making them happier um, and creating a better social life in general. But the book started from an aspect of since 9-11, there's been a consistent politics that doesn't necessarily want to expand life, but is more interested in the proliferation of death. So 
that's that's what the concept means and it's not necessarily a concept which i came up with it's uh, several philosophers such as uh, achilles membe um from i think he's from uh, the ivory coast uh, he wrote a book called necropolitics um and i used other philosophers such as giorgio agamben um who talks about the idea of biopolitics um so yeah, the concept itself was very uh, important in actually pushing the argument that what has accented the Arab world since 9-11 is actually the politics of death and not the politics of life. Mm-hmm. And I can go into details if you would like, but that's pretty much what the concept is. We're going to go through um, uh, several concepts that you mentioned, notably the the 20 years since the American invasion in Iraq and uh, a few other uh, important things that have been happening in the region. Um, before we get there, though, Tell me, do you think that there is something, you know, that the West hasn't fully understood about conducting relations in the Middle East? That's a beautiful question. Um, Yes. And I think in relation to international relations as a discipline, which arose after World War I, World War II, um, which was an Anglo-American discipline. And any discipline arises from the specific epistemology of the day. So following World War I, World War II, um, the specific epistemology that accented the West or international relations was realism, realpolitik, which is, uh, I'm sure our guests and you are aware of this, but I usually uh, describe it as uh, interests are more important than morals. So you do anything that actually uh, advances your interest. And that has been historical. Uh, most societies do advance and most political communities advance and are interested in their interests. However, the Arab world, and I think this goes directly to your question, the Arab world is interested, obviously, in interests, but because it's an area that still values uh, spirituality and religion, and when I, when I say religion, I don't mean just Islam. I mean, you know, Christianity, Judaism. Um, interests are not necessarily at the expense of morals. So the Arab world values the word, logos, right? They value, uh, the word is actually more important than the written word. Uh, Not to go back to Socrates and uh, Muhammad, where they didn't really write anything, they just spoke. So the word was very valuable. Um, And I think... That's one of the things that the West doesn't necessarily, and when I say the West, I don't mean simply geography. I mean uh, specifically uh, the epistemology. So when I, how, how does the West know what it knows? It's usually materialism. Uh, it's all about quantitative, it's not qualitative. So the Arab world um, specifically valuing um, spirituality, I feel like that's something that has always escaped the West when it seeks to speak and come up with uh, solutions and policies to the Middle East. You know, it, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, when you're talking about the region, you know, in the Middle East, uh, there seems to always have been a time where the U.S. has always had a presence there. Um, mm. And we can argue whether that presence has been good or bad, but there have been many attempts at peacemaking and, you know, arguably some less successful than others. And I, I just want to get to something that happened recently. 
you know, the entire world were surprised when when China seems to have brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, not necessarily, well, obviously, because it's Iran and Saudi Arabia, two long-time, uh, two countries that had this long history of, um, of division, mm-hmm. uh, but more specifically because it was China uh, and not the U.S. And, you know, I've been reading a lot of analysis and I've been listening to a lot of commentators. Is there a shift? Is there a shift happening? Uh, is the U.S. losing the footing it's always had as an influential power in the region? Okay, so when it, when it comes to, and this is maybe the the philosophy in, philosophy in me speaking, I usually look at the causes rather than the consequences. So the Iran-Saudi-China um, deal or the United States uh seeming to be losing foot in the Arab region. Um, that's a consequence. So what were the causes that created this new perception is something that I think um, needs to be uh, dissected a bit because this has been, the writing has been on the wall for the past five years. So specifically around the COVID kind of um, juncture, but even previously, um so if we look at the causes, so what has been happening for the past 10 years? So if we look at 2001, 9, 11, 2011, then 2003, if you draw a straight line between these three moments or the, these three acts, right, you, you realize that there wasn't necessarily consultation, cooperation or diplomacy between the United States and the Arab world. So there was, there was simply our interest is this and you have to follow suit, right? So here, this goes back to our idea of, well, if we're sovereign, then there should be a back and forth. There should be a dialogue. What is your interest? What is my interest? So the shift that has occurred in the past few years and it's been crystallized with the with uh, Xi Jinping meeting with um, Hamad bin Salman and uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia recently. This might sound surprising to some to see, but if a person follows the developments that have been occurring for the past few years, it's, it's somewhat of a natural development. And I want to say a few things about this. Um, so... What is interesting and what happened is if if you look at geopolitical shifts, they usually happen in two ways. There's the geopolitical shift, but there's also the ideational shift. And I think it's the ideational or the worldview that is more important. So the worldview of China is similar to the Arab world. China's Confucianist to some extent. It's, it's, It's political system is communist, but the social and what drives it is to some extent a form of uh, Confucianism, right? Which is a a religious uh, garb, if you will. Um, So if we go back to the ideational shift that has occurred, so there's two, if you want, worldviews that that have been clashing for the past few years. There's the one that's led by the United States, which some people call the unipolar liberal worldview. And then there's the Russian, Chinese, 
uh, if you want, worldview, which is a multipolar, um, conservative, sovereign-based worldview. Okay? So, I, I, I want to say a few words, if possible, on this, and I might take, like, a few minutes, if What's possible. Yeah. Okay, so... The, the, the Chinese have specifically emphasized, so there's the ULG, the unipolar liberal worldview that's clashing with the multipolar conservative worldview. The Arabs fall under the MCS, the multipolar conservative worldview. They align with that, right? Um, and that's because China does not, uh, does not necessarily think that there is one civilization or one path to modernity and everybody should follow suit okay they believe there's multiple civilizations and there's differences and it's th it is through differences that we can actually develop a more cohesive cooperative international system this clashes with the unipolar uh liberal worldview which if you want since world war ii has been dominating the international system one form of development one civilization um and the, the the Gulf region, the GCC and the Arab world in general have realized in the past few years that their idea of belonging, their society, their civilization has been perceived as in some aspects inferior to the liberal civilization. And we see this more specifically, let's say, in the World Cup, how the World Cup was kind of broadcasted internationally. While it did occur in Qatar, in Qatar it was perceived as the Arabs not necessarily uh, having um, understood what it means to be civilized or liberal because of their own conservative um, worldview. So China actually developed this idea of Global Civilization Initiative, the GCI. Um, and the GCI has been... Uh, and I, I recommend the viewers to actually read the initiative itself. It's a very inclusive form of perceiving. Uh, it's a very inclusive form of seeing different civilizations. So there's not necessarily a clash of civilizations, but more of a dialogue of civilizations. And uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, uh, the president of the UAE, has on several moments emphasized the importance of engaging in a dialogue between civilizations. So. And that actually goes against, if you want, the unipolar liberal worldview. So, as you said, there's obviously always going to be a clash between these two because it's not in the interest of um, some powers to have a multipolar world, while in some cases it's in the interest of some to have a unipolar world. So this clash um, exists. Um, so I feel like that's why there's a shift it's not necessarily that the United States is leaving the Middle East or the Arab world, but we do see a re, uh, realignment of partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the interesting aspect. The meeting between Xi Jinping and Saudi Arabia occurred before the meeting with Xi Jinping and uh, President Xi Jinping and President Vladimir Putin. Yeah. So if you, if you if you think about it, uh, what happened in Saudi Arabia is a natural continuation to what happened in Moscow, because it could have been the reverse, but it's not a coincidence that it's it was a natural continuation, and that goes back to the Belt and Road Initiative that China has, and that over twenty Arab countries have actually signed off on in the past few years. Um, 
So the BRI is a very important geo geopolitical and civilizational um, project. It's in the interest, obviously, of these powers and these countries to engage in that because they want development, economic development, but they also want to exchange and engage in a dialogue between different civilizations. And I think that's that's the crux of the argument. Um, so if we if we look at what happened, um, for instance, uh, in this in the Saudi Iran uh, Iran deal, if could I could I speak about that or did yeah, you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, it was my next question. I mean, if if there's anything more that we know, um, aside from the fact that at least so far they've they seem to 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 just want to reestablish diplomatic ties, which obviously hasn't happened yet. I mean, they gave themselves a window, uh, but aside from that, I mean, what more do we know? Okay, so one thing that people aren't necessarily aware of is that it is actually Pakistan last year, uh, in 2022, in March, during the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC. This was actually the first time that, um, or one of the first times that uh, Iran was part of the OIC. And it was actually Pakistan who actually initiated this rapprochement uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. So this actually happened last year, and the, the, the instigator was actually Pakistan. If you want, China uh, took the mantle and established it more specifically, but it was actually the OIC, the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, which actually initiated this, um, this step. So there, there, there's obviously a litmus test, if you will. Um, the reconciliation, as you said, um, I think the window was two months. In two months, they'll open the embassies. And the litmus test will be how so, uh, how Iran will react in areas that it's involved in through militias, so whether it's Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, where there's obviously a proxy war happening. Um, but the, the benefit of this rapprochement is not simply Saudi Arabia, Iran. It's actually... On a, it's on a world, it's on a global geopolitical plane. So, for instance, Pakistan hasn't had its peace gas pipeline initiative restored until recently. So, Pakistan's peace gas pipeline initiative was actually halted because there was a lot of differences between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So, the project actually stalled until recently. Now, for those who are not aware of what the peace gas pipeline is, there's actually a Russian-Iran-India uh, trade route project that has been in the works for the past few years, and it's called the, the International North-South Transport Corridor, which is the INSTC. And this actually connects the GCC, the Gulf, to that. So there's a lot of Euro Eurasian mega projects which are linked to this transport corridor. So this rapprochement between, you know, China... Uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it might appear like it's two uh, adversaries coming together, but it's also more than that. It's, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative project that China's involved in. It needs to have stability in these countries so these mega projects can actually go through. Mm -hmm. So, so it, there's benefits for the GCC. There's benefits for Pakistan. There's benefits for obviously China, Russia, India. So having uh, a detente, if you will, or a rapprochement between these two powers 
will create stability, security guarantees in these regions so these projects can actually go through. And these projects are multi-billion dollar projects. Um, so that's that's one aspect that I think people need to also focus on. And there's, um, th there's something that uh, a lot of Arabs are speaking about right now called the Asian century. Okay, so this deal kind of instigates or reinitiates the Asian century, which has been dormant for the past... What's the Asian century? The Asian century, if you will, is um, this idea, if we go back to, you know, the unipolar uh, liberal worldview and the multipolar conservative worldview, it's this idea that these two worldviews can live together, okay, with their differences, but allowing the Asian countries to actually develop on their own, uh, on their own. And when I say on their own, this is not not to say that cut ties with the West, but develop based on our own uh, civilizational uh, characteristics. So um, the Asian century is this idea where since the establishment of this international system during the Bretton Woods Conference and all of these kind of uh, architectures that have if you want, disabled the development of the Arab world. The Asian century allows um, countries that are from different religious persuasions, different ethnicities, different civilizations to actually develop on their own path, okay, at their own, um, in their own way, if you will. And this goes back to the idea where... Um, and this actually goes back directly to the uh, to the Global Civilization Initiative of um, China, um, where we can all develop following our own and respecting our own identities and cultures without having, you know, specific uh, media corporations or specific uh, organizations sanctioning our development because we're going in a different way. Right. Okay, so. Tell so me, yeah, the, uh, go ahead, sir. Yeah, to tell me a little bit because you know, back to the deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Obviously, like we're saying, it's still at a very early stage. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, of course, we don't know how things will progress. Definitely, there's many moving parts that depend on this uh, to work out. But assuming everything falls into place, and you know, knowing the influence that Saudi Arabia has in the region. Is there any potential for this deal to destabilize any progress or alliance uh, that has been made through the the Abraham Accords, for example? Well, the okay, so the Abrahamic Accords or the Abraham Accords, um, obviously Saudi Arabia has not signed on to it. Now, in the past few weeks. Uh, the former prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, has said that our whole objective was to isolate Iran. And here we have one of our major, uh, one of the closest allies of the United States uh, sitting and signing a diplomatic treaty. So with with Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, opening diplomatic relations or hoping to reopen diplomatic relations with Iran, that has kind of isolated Israel. Now, Saudi Arabia has said that we will normalize relations with you and we'll, 
we wouldn't mind signing the Abrahamic Accords or engaging in these relations. But there's two uh, there are two requirements. One, we want a, a, a civil nuclear uh, civil nuclear projects, right? Um, and two, we want to make sure that the Arab Peace Summit that happened in 2002, the clauses in it need to be respected. So for those who are not aware of what happened in the Arab League Summit in Beirut in 2002, uh, the, 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 the the of the of the summit itself said, return to 1967 borders, two-state solution, capital, Jerusalem, uh, three, the right of return for Palestinians. Okay, so that's the position of Saudi Arabia. Okay, uh, but more specifically, Saudi Arabia is saying we'll normalize relations, but if you give us uh, a peaceful uh, uh, nuclear technology, obviously Israel is against that. Um, and the United States does not really seem to be flirting with that idea. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think that the that Saudi Arabia is doing this. Saudi Arabia is, is is increasing. It's going to the extreme. Israel and the United States didn't necessarily think that Saudi Arabia would normalize relations with Iran. But the fact that it did, it's now hedging both sides against each other. Right. It's placing the bet on both. So um, Saudi Arabia wants to um, inform the United States that when when Iran bombed Aramco a few years ago, when Iran uh, bombed Abu Dhabi, the airport, or maybe not Iran, I need to be more specific, the drones that were, I, uh, the drones that were uh, directed by the Houthis in Yemen, right? Those were the ones who bombed, but again, we know uh, who Ansarullah got their, their weapons from. So at that moment, the United States was supposed to uh, retaliate or help Saudi Arabia retaliate against Iran. That didn't happen. So interest would dictate that if this is not going to happen, so if you're no longer the strategic partner that actually helps or defends me, well, I'm going to look outward. I'm going to look to other uh, allies. And this is where, I guess, people can realize that for the past few years, the United States has been removing itself from the strategic architecture of the Arab world, and this is where China comes in. It comes in from economic interest. It comes in from China is building uh, factories that allow ballistic missiles in Saudi Arabia. So there is, you know, uh, a variety of um, weapon contracts and weapon projects that are occurring in Saudi Arabia, which 10, 20 years ago would, would have been unthinkable. Mm. So. The Abrahamic Accords is, and I, I have, I don't necessarily, again, I don't necessarily look at consequences, I look at causes. The Abrahamic Accord is not simply the normalization of relations. It's more than simply that. There's, so there's like a trinity when it comes to that, excuse my, my, my metaphor. So there's the Abrahamic Accords, there's the Abrahamic religion, and there's the Abrahamic path. Okay, most people just know the Abrahamic Accord, but the Abrahamic Accord is a long-term project. Okay, for you to have the Abrahamic Accord, the 
the the clauses in it established you need to and this takes like 10 20 to 30 years because the whole point of the accord is to put a final curtain call on the arab israeli conflict now this does not simply occur with you signing a peace treaty because it's also the the mindset of arabs in general including christians muslims and jews so here you have the entry of the Abrahamic path. And if you want, I can share with you the studies that have been done from the University of Florida and University of Harvard on why did they call it Abrahamic, right? What What's the point of Abraham in this whole idea? Um, so not to go into too much detail, the Abrahamic religion, which is some sort of new religion that uh, specific scholars are talking about, when, when Harvard actually sent specific researchers into the Levant, so they, they didn't meet with governments. They actually met with uh, people, like normal citizens. And they said, what is one thing that, you know, you have in similarity to Israel? They said, Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch. We all believe in Abraham. Okay. So this this study started back in like in the 90s then it took it picked, it picked up speed in 2003 and more specifically 2014. So Abraham becomes this if you want this person where you can now in the long run uh if you want neutralize the Arab Israeli conflict but that is not sufficient because you know Christians know their theology Muslims know their theology and and, and Jews know their theology. So in addition to that, you have the Abrahamic path. What is the Abrahamic path? It's this area where Abraham, peace be upon him, traveled during uh, his prophecy. So it starts from Iraq, goes into Palestine, Syria, then it goes into what we call today Saudi Arabia. So the Abrahamic path, according to um, uh, is Israeli policymakers, they want to create a tourist attraction area. This has not been established yet, but it's part of the whole Abrahamic Accord, uh, uh, if you want, project. So the Abrahamic path is a tourist attraction area where all, all people of this region could go on this tourist attraction area and actually familiarize themselves with the similarities between Israelis, Arabs, etc. And in the long run, because everybody realizes that we're all, you know, cousins, we're all related, we can all go to our different places of worship, that in the long run, if you want, neutralizes um, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Okay, so, but again, when Jared Kushner was asked in 2019, what is the goal of the Abrahamic Accords? He quote unquote said, the goal is to uh, remove the political borders of the Arab world. So that obviously brings up another question. So what happens to the idea of sovereignty? So is the Abrahamic Accords a project where you are seeking to um remove sovereignty of Arab countries and you just keep Israel as the main sovereign entity. Another aspect of the Abrahamic Accords was all places of worship become museums. 
So I can, as a Muslim, I can go to the church of the sepulchre where Jesus was born and I should, I should be allowed to enter. That's not necessarily ethical from a Christian perspective, just like a Muslim wouldn't necessarily think it uh, ethical for a non-Muslim to enter the, the mosque, right? Because we're from different religions. And that's beautiful. That's the whole beauty of the Arab world or the, the, the variety of religions. So all this is to say that obviously the GCC, Saudi Arabia, all the countries that signed off on the Abrahamic Accords, they're aware of that. When they signed on the Abrahamic Accords, it was from a genuine, we do want to solve this issue, which is killing people from multiple religious persuasions. Um, I don't think the deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran and uh, China is going to diminish that. I just do think that Israel is now in a situation where it hasn't been since 1948, where its main partners, um, which it hedged its bets on to keep, you know, the constructive chaos going in the Middle East, um, and now has to kind of realign its uh, its priorities. And maybe that's why it's the government right now is in Israel. It's one of the most right-wing governments. Mm-hmm. And that shows you anxiety. They're in a very anxious situation right now. Um, so the Abrahamic Accords is was a way for the Arab countries to bound Israel through international law. So they bounded it. So now when the UAE goes into the Security Council, because now it has a temporary seat, um, it can actually negotiate and tell Israel, you're violating international law because we have a peace treaty. Before the Abrahamic Accords, Israel can say, well, we're in a state of war, so why would I listen to you? So now the Abrahamic Accords, you actually bounded Israel in international law. And I think that's the genius of... uh, the GCC in making that move, right? It's bounding the country called Israel in international law. Um, Even though it's violated several of the clauses in the Abrahamic Accords related to settlements, the places of worship, all of these have been uh, violated. So technically, the Abrahamic Accords um, has been violated by one party, while the other party is pushing Israel to abide by it. Interesting. Uh, I want to move on to uh, to Iraq. You did uh, allude to that a little bit earlier on. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think every major news outlet in the world has been a reportage about you know the twenty years since the since the U.S. invasion, uh, an invasion which we found out later on uh, was based on a lie. You know, the weapons of mass destruction uh, through Colin Powell's own uh, statement at the at the UN. Uh, but it did topple a regime that was led by a, by a dictator. Where are we 20 years later? Uh, has there really been any progress, um, you know, from the invasion and from the insurgencies and from the different, you know, sectarian civil wars, you know, from fighting ISIS? Has there ever, uh, has there even been any time to focus on rebuilding? Like, where are we 20 years uh, later? Uh, this is is actually interesting because we're talking about the rapprochement between 
China, Saudi, and Iran, right? So in hindsight, the Iraq war was about establishing a new Middle East, right? That was kind of the go-to word that everybody spoke about in 2001, right? We need to, there's a new Middle East, um, you know, Condoleezza Rice is known, and this is actually how I start off the book, uh, when Condoleezza Rice was asked, so what do you think about all the destruction happening in the Middle East? She was asked that in 2006. She said, I think the destruction in the Middle East is the birth pangs of a new Middle East. In other words, destruction is necessary to birth a new Middle East that is similar in civilization and society to the West. Now, 20 it, years. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's happened, though. No. Yeah. Right. But that's that's the interesting. So 20 years in hindsight, what you have was not you have a new Middle East where it's not the United States that is directing it. You now have China that actually entered and is actually mitigating between these two um, uh, rivalries. So. What has what has changed? This is this is like a huge thought. I know you said we only have like forty minutes, but uh, oh, you can take your time. Don't worry. I mean, uh, we can we can so, as long as you want. So if if we look at what happened in two thousand three, and this is something that I actually teach uh, my students. We we tend to say that the Iraq War was a war. It was actually not a war. It was a preemptive war. Right. And in 2003, there was the reformulation of international law. Okay. And I'm going to have to take a few minutes to, to discuss what I mean by that. So, if we recall, in 2003, there was something called the, the preemptive defense strategy, PEDS. This was the first time in international law where you had this concept where I could bomb a country even though that country does not pose an imminent threat. So usually, according to international law, country A bombs country B if country B launched an attack. So I can retaliate. So here we understand the importance of the weapons of mass destruction and Saddam Hussein having links with al-Qaeda, which was all based on um, uh, flawed intelligence. But what we realize is these narratives were important to advance a preemptive war. So, in other words, it was not about Iraq having weapons or not. It was about the thought of Iraq possibly having weapons that made this war legal. Mm -hmm. Okay? And this is, this is the argument that I adhere to. I don't think the United States thought that Iraq had weapons or not. It was just the new law. And there's a lot written on this uh, preemptive defense strategy. For you to advance preemptive defense strategy, you need to have a narrative, a pretext to advance it. So the pretext at that point was uh, the Iraq government is funding al-Qaeda. Uh, Iraq might use these weapons of mass destruction to target its people or the West. So automatically this activates the preemptive defense legal clause and it allows the country to intervene in the country. So the Iraq war in hindsight was not a war. It was a preemptive war. That's why uh, a lot of people were not tried for it because it was a legal war. Mm -hmm. 
obviously putting aside the atrocities that happened, but it just shows you the problem of the international system where you can invent a war legally without actually having evidence, but simply information. So 20 years on, we, we noticed that the laws that were developed after 2001 were not only used for the Iraq war, but also for what happened post-2011. So for those who don't know, Operation Inherent Justice that NATO activated to bomb Yemen, Mosul, parts in Syria was also preemptive defense strategy where they were actually legally allowed to bomb areas um, even though there was a, there were a lot of civilians and infrastructure under the auspices that there are terrorist groups there. So again, preemptive defense. So... Now, what, so what I'm saying is these legal doctrines in hindsight have actually been uh, recycled and reused in several contexts, whether in 2003, whether more recently in the past 10 years. And these laws have been very useful in expanding necropolitics, the politics of death. Okay, so going back to your question, what has changed? What has changed is... When the United States allied with Iran in 2003 to topple uh, the president of the Iraqi government, Saddam Hussein, um, Iran was also okay with the constitution that was put in place, which was a ticking bomb, right? You pretty much divided the whole country based on Shias, Kurds, and Sunnis. So people weren't necessarily part of a national Iraqi identity. They were, they were, they were part of a sectarian national identity. Right. So 20 years from now, we can now see that, well, here you have Saudi Arabia and Iran sitting at a table. And it's not a coincidence that this meeting uh, happened in the same month where the 20 years, uh, the 20 year kind of celebration or the 20 year anniversary uh, since the Iraqi invasion. So we can see that a lot has changed. And while the United States wanted a new Middle East headed by kind of a U.S. hegemony, we now have a, a new Middle East that is multipolar, okay? Um, it seems that Iran will be removing its militias from Syria, and this goes back to the President Bashar al-Assad visiting the UAE a few weeks ago. Um, there are talks that um, the Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia will be visiting Damascus in the next few weeks. Um, President Bashar al-Assad will be traveling to different Arab countries, one of them being Algeria. Uh, he already went to Oman a few weeks ago. Uh, so it seems like the United States wanting to cloister Arab countries and have them, if you will, uh, busy with sectarian violence, with, which did occur, right? It seems that that has reached uh, a dead end um, because the two main if you want, regional powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran, have reached the point where this Sunni-Shi'i kind of conflict, which I don't necessarily like calling it that because it makes it seem that Islam excuses terrorism, but it just seems that they've realized that none of them actually won. Right. None of them, none of them actually reached anything that they wanted. So it was like the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. You know, the Gulf and Saudi Arabia were huge funders on the Iraqi side against Iran. Nothing really happened. It actually created more animosity. 
in the 90s, Saudi Arabia breaks off relations with Iran. 2016, the Saudi embassy in Tehran gets pretty much ransacked. So the only, and this is something that I've been talking about with a few of my, uh, my colleagues, the only solution left to this problem is diplomacy. They tried sanctions, they tried war, they tried proxy war, and it seems that diplomacy and sitting at the table is the final solution. But when, um, we, but when we're talking about Iraq specifically and we look internally, uh, mm-hmm. I, I looked around. I mean, like like we said before, there's so many things coming out now, uh, you know, to, to, to highlight this 20-year mark uh, since the invasion. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff pertaining to democracy. I mean, this is the more mm-hmm. Western media sources. And as far as democracy goes, you know, since 2003, uh, since the invasion, you know, there have been six elections, eight different governments, seven different prime right. ministers, some that we, we we had never seen before in Iraq. Um, the elections have have been held on time, uh, although Freedom House, you know, still rates Iraq as, you know, not free. I think in 2023, in the most recent um, rating, it's they still rate it as as not free. Uh, but, you know, there's other indicators as well that we know uh, from these indicators that there have been certain major uh, improvements and accomplishments. Um, we know that uh, the, the the human index indicator uh, from the UN, uh, you know, there's different statistics where we know that the, 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 the life expectancy is better. I mean, it added, I think, five or six years. Um, uh, GDP per capita uh, is up almost six times. There are these indicators that seem to indicate that things are kind of improving. Um, but does that paint the full picture of Iraq and the significant challenges that perhaps it still faces 20 years later? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, these uh, qualitative indicators are um, superficial. So if a person actually goes on right now and checks the the GDP indicators of Lebanon, they seem pretty stable, right? But we all know that Lebanon right now is in a very uh, bad shape. So when we go back to the Iraq example, since 2003, Iraq hasn't been a nation. And I think that's why these indicators don't really make sense. Iraq has been divided into, if you want, there's like, if you want three different sovereignties in Iraq, you know, they have the Kurds who claim sovereignty in one part, you have the Shias, then you have the Sunnis who are just like uh, outsiders in a way. So, and there's also the idea where most of Iranian products that come from Iran into Iraq, they, they create a, uh, they, they don't allow competition. So anything that's locally, uh, produced in Iraq does not have any lifeline because you have cheap uh, Iranian products entering. You also have the idea of most oil revenue for the past 10 years. I think the number is around like half a trillion dollars worth of oil revenue that has been unaccounted for. We don't really know where it went according to the story, but it's, 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 it's obviously it's capital flight. Some of it went to endorsing the Iranian economy. So th- there's there's a lot of there's a lot of thing like I don't necessarily want to talk about 
um, what the United States did wrong because a, a person can read the third chapter of my of my book for that. Um, but you know, disbanding the army under Paul Bremer was a huge uh, mistake um, that created um, animosity. Because when you remove a, an army, what you're really trying to say is that this country is no longer sovereign. It becomes a colony, right? Um, you know, liquidating all ministries, but just keeping the oil ministry uh, is also a problem. Um, devaluing the currency, ransacking the central bank, all of these things created a situation where Iraq, Iraq was simply up for grabs. And the countries that grabbed it are the United States and Iran. Okay, and as you said, while the indicators might show progress uh, on the ground, there isn't. There isn't water. There isn't the basic the basic developments. There isn't water. There isn't water. There isn't electricity. Um, brain drain has occurred for the past ten years, um, and I think this is one of the major importance of the Saudi Iran Iran deal because Arabs are aware that Iraq is not a place that is living up to its potential. And you need to have a negotiation and a dialogue between Iran and the Arab countries. And this has been happening for the past two years. You know, there was the, the Amman dialogue. Uh, there was the Baghdad dialogue. Uh, you had um, the president of the prime minister of Iraq attending Riyadh last year. Um, so the, the democracy is not some people see democracy as a government style it seems that democracy uh is more of a culture like are you democratic are you liberal are you secular uh are you um are you willing to shed away your identity and your culture and become something else obviously this will create a lot of problems internally because you can't forcibly eject a society from its natural historical development. And when you do that through war, through private military contractors, uh, by forcibly displacing people, by using unconventional 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 weapons, let's say in Fallujah or what have you, you create animosity. Um, when you start targeting mosques based on different persuasions, whether Shia mosques or Sunni mosques or over 3 million Christians have left Iraq, right? So this cultural mosaic that Iraq had has been, in the name of democracy, actually created a highly undemocratic environment, right? right? Um, so we, we can't forget the importance of uh, this mosaic of cultures and religions in Iraq, which has subsided in the past 10, 10 15 years. I think there's only around 200,000 Christians right now in Iraq, which is yeah. a sad story because the beauty of the Arab world is through this multiplicity of religions and ethnicities. And I think since 2003, there's been a systematic, if you want, liquidation of this civilizational heritage that we are proud of and it's not only arabs that made that possible right it's you know the greeks the persians the romans the um you know all of these groups living together for centuries has created this beautiful um cultural um 
a brilliance, right, which has decomposed uh, slowly through, you know, the war on terror kind of narrative, you know, Arabs being terrorists, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in hindsight, it seems that we're, we're attempting through diplomacy to uh, remedy that, that dark page. Um, so, yeah. You know, in our exchange, while we were preparing for the podcast, you mentioned to me that, you know, you wouldn't mind talking about the importance of a, of a non-Western approach to international relations and law. And it immediately piqued my interest because, you know, for someone like me, born and raised in Canada and kind of fully immersed in, in Western principles, you know, rights and freedoms, gender equality, uh, open and free democratic elections, you know, free market economy, privatization and all these things. You know, all principles, by the way, that have been equally adopted but in, in other parts of the world. Right. It feels like this Western approach to international relations uh, and law is probably the more beneficial way. Um, in, in your opinion, what in that approach doesn't or hasn't worked with countries in the Arab world? Well, for us to understand international relations as a discipline, we also need to understand the discipline that arose right beside it, which is international law. So when I teach international relations, I actually have a week that informs the students about the, the, the law that dictates relations amongst foreign countries. So if realism is the approach of international relations, interests over morals, the, the natural school of law which makes that possible, interest being more important than morals, is positivist jurisprudence. What is positivist jurisprudence? It's the idea that law is different than morality. Okay? So, this might sound very confusing, oh, <laughs> but okay. let me explain. So, the Arabs, and specifically Muslims, we don't separate between law and morality. Anything that is legal, by definition, has to be moral, okay? What you had, for instance, in the Iraq war, the Iraq war was a legal war, but it was immoral. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you said, it was based on factless, uh, baseless evidence. But the international system that has developed since World War II allows these developments to occur under the auspices of law. Okay, so when I say we need a new approach to international relations or, or non-Western approach, yeah, what, what I mean that, is... What, yeah, what does that entail? What does a non-Western approach entail? Uh, and how, in your opinion, could it serve a better purpose, especially in that region? Right, so um, in, in, in that region, we already see its indicators. So diplomacy, cooperation, consultation, engaging in dialogue, which is not necessarily... Um, a Western approach to international relations sees diplomacy as a means to an end. Okay? Mm -hmm. Diplomacy, by definition, should be an end, not a means. So realism, because it's based on interests over morals, I'll, I'll align myself with George today because it's in, my, it's in my interest. But two, three years from now, if, it, if it's no longer in my interest, I can now break away that alliance. An Arab 
or a non-Western approach to international relations would say that diplomacy is an end, it's not a means. So when Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed attended Moscow a few uh, months ago, um, and he sat with President Putin, um, that development itself, which is diplomacy, it's an Arab approach to international relations, which is, it's in the interest of all peoples, Ukrainian, Russians, there's people dying from both sides. So if we value human life from a spiritual perspective, not from an ethnic perspective or a nationalist perspective or a religious perspective, war should end. War should be an exception, not the norm. A realist approach to international relations or a Western approach sees war as the norm, peace as the exception. Mm -hmm. Okay, because... The system which has developed since World War II, and I don't really have the time to get into the philosophy behind it and the epistemology, because I would have to go back to like the Renaissance, the Enlightenment period, uh, which is a very um, heavy, uh, which we can talk about maybe inshallah in the future, if you're going to have me again. Sure. <laughs> right. So a non-Western approach is simply... Uh, allowing spirituality into the discussion. So there's an Arab saying which says, um, the third person in any negotiation is God. Okay? it's. In, I don't want to interrupt you, but it's interesting that you're mentioning yeah. this because if we go back to those Western principles that I just mentioned and how they've also been uh, adopted in you know other parts of the world, in mm -hmm. many of these cases, it is countries where we've clearly seen a separation between religion, church, and the state. Um, is that right. something that comes into play, for example, in the Arab world? Well, well, yeah, like, I, I think I think Arabs in general, just that region, uh, they, they, they appreciate their religious and spiritual heritage, and they don't necessarily separate religion from their political and social... Um, uh, exercises, right? So, you know, I was actually speaking to one of my uh, one of my friends uh, at McMaster University. He's actually one of my mentors uh, during my PhD, uh, Professor Nibaldo Gaigios, and he always told me that uh, you know the West loves conducting uh, economic deals with Arabs because they never go back on their word, <laughs> right? And it's it's, it's very interesting because uh, this goes back to interest and morals. Like, we balance between these two, right? We're not necessarily, you're my friend today and you're my enemy tomorrow. And this is something in diplomacy called high context and low context negotiation styles. Um, Arabs are high context. So when you and I are speaking, I'll make sure that I listen to your words. I am not explicit. I'm implicit. I'm... I look at body language. I'm not imperative in my demands because by definition, if you're imperative in a negotiation, then it's not necessarily diplomacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and that goes back to not because, you know, we're Muslim or whatever, because Arabs are not Muslim. Arabs are Christian, Muslim, Jews, and others. Uh, it's just part of our epistemology. When we look at the world, we don't necessarily see it as materialistic. You know, that's why... There's never been a red communist flag in the Arab world. And that's why there's never been, a, uh, you know, a liberal capitalist government either. We take from these two whatever we think is beneficial. 
because the West is beautiful, right? There's beautiness and ugliness in every society, especially in the Arab world, especially in the West. There's beauty and ugliness or good and evil in every part of the world. Um, but one thing that we're not necessarily willing to compromise on is our spiritual predisposition. And that dictates our political relations with countries and um, um, and how we like to be perceived, right? And I think the World Cup made that clear as well. A person could be any sexual, uh, any they can adopt any sexual leaning that they want. That's up to you. Um, but to now make it seem like if you don't adopt Western values, that means you're inferior or uncivil or violating democratic norms, that becomes an issue because um, we are a different civilization, a different identity, a different um, different people. It's very, very interesting. Uh you're a busy guy, and I know I've taken way more uh, time uh, from uh, from your schedule than we should have. Uh, but it was a very interesting discussion, and I want to thank you for that. And again, I just want to remind everyone um, to visit strategyinternational.org. Check out all the beautiful things that that that, that are that are being done over there, and uh, of course, uh, all the social media platforms, especially YouTube. You can see all the webinars uh, that Strategy International has organized, and uh, they're up there for you to uh, to get informed and educated. Um, Khaled, thank you, thank you so much. It was um, it was a very interesting discussion, and uh, perhaps we should have another one uh, uh, on the topics that, uh, that 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 you want, and uh, we can. I, I mean, I can go, I can go on forever, uh, but uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time and to uh, uh, and for sharing your knowledge to our listeners and to our viewers. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, and I'll see you all in the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.